This is how activist and musician Shutescat Martinez introduces himself in professional settings. My name is Shutescat. My people are the Mexica peoples of Mexico Tenochtitlan. I was born in Colorado, occupied Arapaho Ute territory. And yeah, I'm a climate activist and organizer, artist, and performer. And if there weren't a pandemic and he were, say, at a party, I asked him how he would introduce himself there. Uh, I'm Shutez Scott, and... It's been a while since I've been to a party. I don't even know why. Um, <laughs> but I would tell people that I make music and that I'm down for the cause. You may know the name Shoot Hazkat. He's been speaking up for the environment since he was six years old. Hello, my name is Shutezkatonatio, and I just said a prayer on my native language. I was giving thanks to all the elements, the water, the fire, the earth, the air. Over the years, he's also spoken hello, hello. and rapped before the United Nations, representing Earth Guardians, a group his mother founded. What does this question really mean? Is he asking how you fit into society? I am a rapper, an activist. Scott's 20 now. Who you are, who and he's helping us wrap up our series 20 in 2020 who am I? on this global generation coming of age. Like a lot of us, he got trapped by the pandemic. And then, everything changed. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. So let's take a little trip back to last year, around this time. We're thinking about 2020, looking ahead. What were your goals for this year? 2019 was a big year for me. I did some of my early touring, like some of my first headline shows. And as an artist, started exploring a lot. And like from an organizing perspective, I was a surrogate for Bernie Sanders for a good portion of, of 2019 and early 2020. Really excited about that campaign involved politically. And then also this training initiative for indigenous youth that we began under the Earth Guardians to come together, learn, teach, heal. We had big plans, big visions in 2020, the vision was to expand creatively, to tour, to put out this next record, which we still ended up doing right before the pandemic. I was planning on being on the road a good amount, playing some of these festivals, and then I wanted to drop, you know, two albums and tour, and so it was... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so how much did you get a chance to do before the pandemic? We did one of them. And my first headline show in New York... Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was dope in Manhattan. Then we had the album release show in the Bay on the 29th of February. So like right before everything got shut down, we had already booked a show in Chicago. We were already looking at summer tour days. And they were like, okay, we need to bring this to like live audiences all over. We were getting ready to play shows in LA. That was really the last show that we ever played. And a lot of people that I talked to are like, bro, when we went to your show in the Bay, like that was the last thing that we experienced with like that many people before the pandemic really hit. Talk to me about what that felt like when you realized you had to put not just one tour, but two tours on hold. 
Just bringing it all to life on a stage helped us understand the potential that this music has. Seeing how the audience responded was deeper than just the music or the art. Many of us know like art as a tool to fuel revolution, to fuel conversations that bring us forward as a society. So it was bittersweet memories of that for sure. And I had one final like speaking gig that I did at a conference in Minnesota. Then the pandemic hit. And at that point, it was when everybody was like, okay, we're not going to be shaking hands. You know, I got there. The event organizers were like, we need to maintain social distance. It was weird. It was like that transition point. And as soon as I got back from that, I was like, just seeing the domino effect of every gig I had through December getting like canceled um, was, was wild. My life is on the road. My life is moving from place to place, speaking at universities, sharing these stories. Mobility and connecting with community in person is such an important part of what I do. It was just disappointing and just scary. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen, how bad things were going to get. He thought about going home, but even that was a problem then. Because travel was unsafe and my family, they were moving homes. So like my childhood home that I grew up in had so many good, like my my younger life in. Like, I didn't get to say goodbye to it. It's interesting. Yeah. He ended up in Philadelphia a city he didn't know that well. But his partner was living there in a group house with a bunch of organizers from the Sunrise Movement. They also work on climate issues. And I was just out there visiting, actually, just like right after my show in the Bay. So not only are you out of the nest, you're in a group housing situation with some people you may or may not know in the middle of a pandemic. It was wild. I mean, first of all, like the the young people who run Sunrise are just like some of the hardest workers I've ever encountered to a point where I'm like, yo, you need to take a break. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And we were really locked in the house. Like we were really quarantining and taking it very seriously, more so than I think other folks that we saw around us. Very minimal outdoor exposure, grocery runs, masked up all the time. It was nine people in the house. There was six bedrooms or something. We were cooking meals together every single day. So it was like a really beautiful community element a very important part of me experienced a lot of growth and another part of me was like a little bit dormant. I was very cut off creatively because nobody in my house were artists. That was the creative side. Did that feel like a struggle? Early on, I really struggled. There's so little space. I wasn't around my community. I wasn't around my ceremonial community, my family, my other Native folks. Creatively, I definitely felt quite like dormant for, for the first couple months. And then like right after that, George Floyd was murdered. It was the end of May, and anger and frustration at the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police led to protests against racism and police violence all over the United States. State of emergency in Los Angeles. In Detroit, demonstrations turned deadly. In Nashville, there was more than a thousand arrests. And really, all over the world. In Paris, they marched. In London, thousands of people gathered in Trafalgar Square with signs while chanting George Floyd. They then marched through the- so not surprisingly, in Philadelphia, there were protests too. And like the streets of Philadelphia were on fire. Breaking tonight, peaceful demonstrations turning violent in Philadelphia. Philadelphia police called in backup as the first day of demonstrations in memory of George Floyd took a chaotic turn. We were out on the streets at a handful of the different gatherings and protests that happened. And when we weren't, you would just see on social media down the block, people getting trapped, trying to shut down the freeway, getting pepper spray from helicopters, tear gassed and, and surrounded and people getting like it was it was very intense, like police cars driving by. 
And one of my boys, Alex, who, who organizes at Sunrise, he's a young black organizer from Florida, to see how he felt the power of the moment as a truly revolutionary time, where the conversation even around police reform evolves around abolition, around defunding the police. It was just continued violence that both is apparent on the media and, and shown and goes viral, and also so much that we know that happens every single day that goes unseen tragedy and heartbreak, you know? I think one of the biggest things for me as well was understanding the connectivity between the struggle for Black liberation and Indigenous sovereignty and really seeing Indigenous folks showing up strong to defend Black life and to stand in solidarity with our Black kin and vice versa. And I think the conversation around not just police violence, but white supremacy as a whole within our culture and within our society lit up a lot of conversations and wins within struggles for indigenous sovereignty, just being dedicated to each other's liberation was so beautiful and something that I've committed myself to. Were those things that you felt comfortable sharing with the people around you? You know, I was the only Native living in that household. Alex was the only Black man living in that house. So me and him really dropped in, I think, on a lot. And it really felt good to have somebody in your space that you just really felt like you were going through it together. And it was like that for the whole house, but I think it was especially me and him. Um, we had just like a really good, found a lot of love for each other, having those conversations around the intersections of Black and Indigenous liberation. And at the same time, Shutaskat was still working on organizing with the Indigenous community. In 2019, myself and, and, and the folks at Earth Guardians organized this Indigenous youth leadership training camp and brought Indigenous youth from all over North America together onto the land in Arkansas. This beautiful piece of land with gorgeous, fresh, clean drinking water right there. I say people, y'all say power. People, Different communities spoke different languages, had different ceremonies, different forms of prayer. And it was just absolutely life-changing for me personally to get to be with so many of my peers that were in a similar place in their lives. And 2020 comes around, pandemic, we moved it online. And it was really surprising to me actually how it was still so impactful. We did like a five-week course, two days a week, several hours on Zoom, which gets exhausting, but people stayed engaged and inspired. Aside from the trainings and the protests, Shutazkat had a lot of time to think and read. And he had all these thoughts in his head, things he wants to do, make, create. That's the point where he says things started to feel a little more clear. Some folks moved out, I rented another room and turned it into a studio space and was able to breathe, you know, a little bit more and like challenge myself and learn to record myself and learn to mix and learn to grab instruments that were in my household. And it took a second, but like, I think the isolation also pushed me to like be just more innovative with how I explore my own art. And as much that was going on outside in the world at that time, I think so much of my art that was created over the last nine months was very introspective. Looking at myself, my family, these values that I had grown up with, understanding the dysfunctions and the trauma within my community and within my immediate family. Exploring that, putting that on paper, recording that, hearing myself speak those words. It was exciting to be able to like bring that to life in a certain way. Um, it, felt, it felt really right. 
I was actually just right before we started our interview, I was kind of jamming in my headphones and do a couple of your songs because they're infectious. I appreciate it. So talk to me about what songs you want to share with me today. I think one one conversation that, that came up, I think in parallel to a lot of what was happening this summer was this idea of borders. Human-made borders as a construct that also ties together so many of our struggles for liberation. Having family members that are undocumented and seeing firsthand the impact of family separation. That's been something that I've kept pretty private for the majority of my life. And so I, a little while ago, last year, I wrote this song called El Cielo. Cielo means the sky. And I actually didn't have a name until this year. I played the song for my pops a bunch of times. And I was like, what are we going to call it? You know, we came up with a bunch of ideas. And I think the sky is such a beautiful metaphor that we were talking about, both for this idea of freedom, of flight, of, of travel, and also this weight, the weight of the sky on our shoulders. Kind of this dichotomy is very personal as I grew up. Regardless of these challenges that we had, like the love of our family was always able to overcome these human-made borders. Doesn't mean things weren't hard, but like the love of our family was stronger and, and kept us together, even in physical distance from one another. Tell me about the visuals for the music video, because it is stylistically stunning. It starts with the quote, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And then you're in a house. And you're lying down and you sit up and you're watching a TV screen. And on the TV screen, it looks like the version of you at six years old. I was speaking at a, at a local climate environmental event here in Boulder. That was the first public like appearance that I ever did. Most kids don't even know that the world is sacred. I think that image is how a lot of people still see me in a lot of ways as this like young environmentalist kid. And uh, so... The symbolism of of turning off the television, turning off that scene, I think just really lets people know that like this is creatively an opportunity for me to tell a new story and to transition the way the world sees me and to kind of reclaim my narrative. And I think Indigenous people, it's an important part of our struggle for sovereignty to have control over how our story is told because everybody is already trying to tell that and shape that narrative for us. So you have been an activist since the age of six. What does that indicate about where your activism is right now? Mm. And is it at all symbolic of maybe how this 2020 has been? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I think you're absolutely correct in that it is reflective of this year for me. This whole year was just very deep on the tip of stepping away publicly, not just because I can't tour and speak and go and do all these things and and talk to crowds and just looking at how what my orientation has been to these movements throughout my life a lot of people look to me thinking that I know what's up and answers and so this year was really a lot of me asking more questions parts of the activism I've done for a long time environmental 
work in general has been isolated to majority white communities and white people thinking about and talking about it and white organizers not doing work to effectively address the very real connections between many other struggles for justice. And the reality is I, I now have this platform. And so I think I have to be so intentional about how I leverage that. And to really close the door on a part of who I was and of how I presented myself to the world. I think I just see the world differently and I see the changes that need to happen in a different light, in a more whole picture. Shutezkot says he wants to put a lot more time into his music and use that to share what's on his mind. But after so many years in the spotlight, changing how the world sees you can be hard. I asked him about that, and he said he's ready for the challenge. He's made some shifts already. I stepped down as the, the youth director of Earth Guardians this year. I've held that title for a long time. And to re, reorient myself in relationship to that organization felt really good. I would love to do some more organizing work with Sunrise and with different organizations on the ground. Best case scenario, like fall 2021, we can have an in-person gathering for Indigenous Youth Leadership Training. That was just some, one of the best experiences of my life when, when we had that first training in 2019. So hopefully we'll be on the land again together this coming year. His other goals are more personal. Just to continue to learn and grow, be humble, and stepping out of the way in a lot of ways as well for other folks to come and do the work that they are here to do. What do you think this year has meant for you or will mean for your future? I, I hear a lot of like older organizers talk about the moment that they were like politicized or radicalized. And I think I went through a lot of that this year, for sure. It'll be a, like a, a bittersweet memory. Like I made some really incredible friendships and memories. I went into that house with eight other people in it in March, not really feeling comfortable or knowing anybody, never having like a co-housing situation like that. And coming out, like making lifelong friends, you know, and lifelong like partners in crime as organizers and as revolutionaries, you know, and this year will and has changed my relationship to myself and my relationship to the work that I've done over the last 19 years. And hopefully set me in a, in a really healthy, good place to continue growing, continue doing work. But we'll see. We'll see how, how long we make it, you know? Um, yep. Yeah. The future is so uncertain. I wish you luck. I appreciate that. And all those future endeavors, because all of them sound like I can't wait to see what you do with them. Shutaskot, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciated it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a great time. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliay, Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. To hear from the other members of Generation Z we spoke to for our 20 in 2020 series from Poland, Pakistan, Palestine, Sierra Leone, and Rwanda, follow us on social media. We're at AJ the Take on Twitter and Instagram, and you'll find links to our previous episodes there. We'll be back. <laughs>